Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who may ask himself, how do I work this? And he may ask himself, where is that large automobile? But it's just the same as it ever was. Here's my co-host from the left coast. Here's Wayne Fugate. Uh, hola, Ben. How mean? So for this episode, we have a special guest. He was one of the Davids in the 80s band, David and David. And I know he's kept himself busy over the last few decades, lending his musical talents to other talented musicians. So please welcome to the podcast, David Ricketts. Nice to be here. Fantastic. So the premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast, we ask the all-important question, what t-shirt are you wearing? Let's start with with David. What t-shirt are you wearing? Well, I am wearing a, a Bearsville Studios uh, t-shirt that I got in the uh, 90s. When I was recording at Bearsville Studios, which was a studio that was in Woodstock, New York. All right. Which uh, was started by the legendary Albert Grossman, who um, was Bob Dylan's manager. Right. And I was uh, recording the first album of Matthew Ryan. Fantastic. And we were doing the the early tracking for that in January of, uh, I think it was 97. At any rate, it was cold, and uh, but it, it was a fantastic place. I mean, it was uh, the kind of thing that you know you used to think you wanted to uh, record at. Where we recorded was in one of the re, uh, studio facilities that was part of it, and it was called the Barn, and it was actually a barn that they converted into a, a you know a, basically a tracking room for recording, and it was uh, you know. It was kind of steeped in all that kind of lore of the band and Dylan and all that kind of stuff, and it, it was uh, it was really a lot of fun. That's where I met Matthew, and you know we're still chums to this day. I was actually just listening to May Day an hour ago, which was the record that yeah. we uh, That's you know, exactly the inception it. of, yep. yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk about my T-shirt. So last week I was in Detroit for for work, and uh, I went to go see Wilco in Ann Arbor. That is the, uh, the home of the Michigan Wolverines. And so I'm wearing, I'm wearing a, a, a new Wilco T-shirt, but I had a, I had a couple hours to kill before the show. So there was a Salvation Army on the way to the campus. And because I'm one of those weird, weird guys that wants to see if I can find any cool rock T-shirts or CDs or albums. And while I'm digging through the CD pile there, I found Mayday. So I purchased it for a whole whopping 25 cents. Ooh, I, that hurts. <laughs> uh, hurts a little bit. <laughs> the rest of it, I'm saying, ooh, I got chills. <laughs> right up until then. <laughs> the, co- the cosmos is uh, speaking to us. Yeah. So uh, I, I ended up getting, uh, so I paid $2 for 
Um, Matthew Ryan, I got the Garden State soundtrack, Peter Gabriel's So, which I didn't have on CD for some reason, and uh, the Hamilton soundtrack. So little 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 eclectic taste there but uh paid a whole whopping two bucks for for the whole lot so and what was this place salvation army it's over over wow. there by the uh the university hmm didn't didn't find any uh rock t-shirts all right wayne i haven't asked you what what about you what uh what t-shirt are you wearing well, uh, we're talking about a New York band, so I wore a T-shirt from my favorite New York band, the Beastie Boys. Uh, this is it matches. It's front on the front. It's almost exactly a replica of my 1987 tour shirt. It's missing the uh, slogan on the back, though. The uh, which is the "Get Off My um, Johnson." Get off my dick. Yep. Yeah, get off yeah. my dick. Yeah. Did you use like the the replacements? I still do. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thought that might fit into the New York band category somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, well, David, um, you know, we just talked about Matthew Ryan. I got to thank him for getting us connected because he had, he had posted to his social media a couple weeks ago about one of the songs on his latest EP, um, song called the last event. And he indicated that a, David Ricketts played on the song and arranged it. And I was like, wait, I know that name. Where do I know that name? And I, I'm assuming you get that a lot where people go, David Ricketts. I know that name. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I probably wouldn't hear it that much, but um, I think so. Yeah. And Ryan, Ryan and I co-wrote that tune together. It's a great, great tune. Really good, good stuff. And and so with a simple Google search, I was reminded who you were. And I have to say, well, give me a minute to, to gush on you for a few minutes, if, if you don't mind. I, I have to I have to tell you that um, the David and David record from 86 was one of my favorites of that time period. Um, and I have a few stories related to that because because I played that record to death. And it was released well before the days of the whole internet. I had no idea that that record would end up being David and David's only album. So I scoured countless record stores back in the day, hoping to find the next David and David record only to come up goose eggs every single time. That that's the first gushing on, on on that on that record, and then I have to tell you that about twenty years ago, so I purged my music collection when I moved to Florida. Just got rid of a bunch of vinyl, got rid of a bunch of cassette tapes. I just needed room, um, downsized, and I got rid of nearly all of my cassette tapes, but I kept a handful of those tapes that I just couldn't part with for sentimental reasons or whatever and one of the, the the 40 cassette tapes that i kept was the david and david record so there you go well, just thanks. throwing out uh, the, the the fanboy stuff here very flattering <laughs> thank you all right so i'm getting that all out of the way so you can so. gush any moment you want to it during this though <laughs> <laughs> miss christina drives a 944 Satisfaction oozes from her pores. 
She keeps rings on her fingers, marble on her floor. Cocaine in her dresses, bars on her door. She keeps a bag against the wall. She keeps a bag. Let's go back to the late 80s. So what what happened? Why was there not a second David and David record? Um, I don't know. I mean, we tried uh, a couple of times, of course. We, we gave it a really good uh, try. I think kind of celebrity and uh, the two of us were a bad fit. And... Um, we kind of were were confused about what we were doing because we were we really had some magic going on in that uh, first album, which was, you know, largely conceived in my living room in Hollywood on a porta studio. And sometimes when you uh, have uh, all kinds of things thrown at that, where the next time now you've had uh, your name in the paper and you've done videos and you've gone on tour. And you've had all kinds of critical acclaim. Um, that adds a, a lot of weight to what you were doing before. When you know all all you were doing when you didn't have any of that was just making music, right? And um, we were just having a hard time. I, mean, I think we, you know, we we would try to do that, and just um, uh, we never it was never satisfying to us what we uh, came up with. I mean, it's difficult, you know, because of course we wanted to do it. Sometimes it's probably even a good idea to do a, a kind of mediocre second album if it clears the way for for more work. Right. But that's that's what happened. You said eighty nine because eighty eight was the last we tried in eighty eight. You know, had been in the studio and all that kind of stuff, and it just wasn't doing it for us. We might have been overcritical. We might have been. Uh, you know, just kind of having a difficult time with each other. But whatever it was, we didn't, uh, we couldn't kind of get it together to, you know, complete a second record that we were both satisfied with. So it wasn't a label dropping you because sales weren't good or whatever. No, no, it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, our sales were good. All that kind of stuff that you want to have happen was, uh, had happened to us. Uh, our our problem was just kind of uh, getting past probably ourselves in order to, uh, you know, get back to that place where you're really feeling it in that way. And you yeah. kind of can't manufacture that. I mean, it's everybody says that and it's kind of cliche, but that's kind of true at the same time. Right. So so the other David, he he ended up putting out a couple solo records. Right. And, and how do you how do you pronounce 
the other David's last name? Bearwald. Bearwald. Okay. Um, did you play on any of those records? I didn't play on them. Our 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 most conspicuous collaboration after the David and David stuff was uh, the Cheryl Crow Tuesday Night Music Club, uh, which we were both uh, part of. We had a couple of uh, a couple of the tunes on his solo albums we collaborated on as as writers, and uh, but I didn't actually play on them. No. Gotcha. Okay. So that was that was what uh, five six years after the David and David record. What Cheryl Crow? The Sher- the Cheryl Crow. Yeah, I think that was ninety two. Okay, something like that. Yeah, I did take a look at some credits. So, um, you know, two two out of the three of my favorite songs off of that record, you you've got credits on. So, leaving Las Vegas and Strong Enough, you're you're on both of those, right? Two of the first things that we did. Uh, oh, were they? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Le- leaving Las Vegas was the very first night. I mean, I, I, I don't know if Bearwald knew, but I had no idea that we were even making a record or anything. So it was, it was just kind of a show up and and jam kind of thing. Uh, and it was uh, actually a lot of fun. I didn't think you know, when we were doing that, we were making a record or anything like that. It was just kind of, after a few weeks, I realized that that's what was going on. But, uh, you know, at first it was kind of loose and fun in a very kind of well-outfitted studio in Pasadena. And that was Bill Batrell's um, studio? Correct. That was Bill Batrell's studio. Yeah. And his resume is just crazy. It is uh, absolutely um, the thing that was good about th- this. Um, what we were doing there was it kind of ran counter to all that stuff. It was about kind of at, at least at first it was kind of about loosening up and you know just getting to this kind of stuff that you get to when you're relaxed, which is always the best. Um, and you know the best records come out of that stuff. And uh, that's uh, that's where we were the first few times. So yeah, and those two tunes that you mentioned were you know probably out of the first six times we got together or something. Which is where the the name of the record even comes from, right? The yep. Tuesday Night Music Club. Yep, that's just a bunch of musicians hanging out and trying to trying to make some good tunes, right? Yeah, I mean it wasn't. Uh, it, it was definitely we were going to write together. And, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't, there was not that much pressure at first. Yeah. So, so did you work with her on other records or was the first record just the, the, the only time? Yeah, that was a one time only. So help me with the history because the, the internet doesn't tell me a whole lot. And you're, I, I, did you have a hand in, in the Wikipedia page for, for you? For yourself, no. <laughs> so that's just a lot of people putting together bits and pieces of who they think you are, Ben. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it, so um, you could be right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. Uh, trust me, I did not do it. I and I the the one thing that I thought was interesting. So I always try and do a little little bit of research on our guests and also on the records that we're going to talk about. 
you don't have much of a presence on the internet. Like I, I, there's no website for you, or at least I didn't find one. Um, I think there's a Facebook page with a little bit of info, but I don't even know if that's an official David Ricketts page. Is that a, is it, is that official? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, that's that's what I figured. That's what I figured. So, how does somebody like you, who has continued to be a musician and continue to to work? how how do you have like zero online presence and and kudos to you for for being able to pull it off it's i mean it's probably just the stuff that i did in the past that um you know is is resonant enough so that um i haven't leaned on i mean i i'm not saying that there's necessarily anything bad about having an online presence i'm just not naturally drawn to that yeah um and it's it's not not the kind of thing that it's not a language that I speak with any kind of urgency, and and so um, usually what the stuff that I've gotten has been because I did stuff that people liked before and they remembered it, and um, rather than you know. Uh, relying on a kind of an online presence. I mean, I, I, th- I imagine like I keep imagining that someday that I'm going to have to do, uh, or I, I don't, shouldn't even put it like that. It's not like necessarily have to, I will do a, a, a website or I will do a, a page that, you know, gives a accurate picture that I, that I'm comfortable with. Um, but it hasn't happened yet because it's just not, uh, it hasn't necessarily been something that I find myself drawn to yeah, or that particularly interested in. I gotcha. Some, somebody asked me what the worst part of, of having a podcast is. And I said, um, it's marketing. Cause I, I don't really enjoy marketing. Like I enjoy the whole recording of the podcast and putting it together and knowing that it exists, but telling people about it, I don't know. It just feels well. I know what you. I I know what you mean. Yeah, I, it just seems. I don't know. It just. I won't say it makes me feel dirty when I'm like trying to convince people that uh, you should come check out my podcast. It's just. I don't know. I'm if just, I have a problem a bit with it, I guess it's been that it can seem about the marketing more than it can seem about the actual work. Yeah. And um, it can seem about the, you know, having content for uh, the marketing rather than the other way around, which, you know, which um, that's one thing. I, I mean, there was a lot I liked about the old days of the record companies in, in spite of the fact that they might have been pirates or this or that or right. uh, something. But the thing is, is that you as an artist didn't have to to do any of that stuff you didn't have to you know figure out your marketing campaign you didn't have to figure out uh, you know what you were going to say and um you know that made you look cool or something like that that was kind of done for you and, oh have t- times have changed yeah they sure have i mean it's and, it's and, all about having to to market yourself i mean i really Wayne, you can, really it's... i mean you can attest to this when we talked to matthew couple months ago i mean we spent like an hour just talking about the state of the music industry and the need to 
it's it's just as much about trying to market yourself as opposed to just the music itself like the music itself should sell itself but it's that's not how the music industry works and so then what is it that you're selling and you know i mean does that change because because the entire uh, business model has changed so much that you're not actually even selling the, the same kind of thing anymore yeah that uh, yeah which I don't necessarily want to talk about that 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 much, but I mean, it, you know, that's what it is uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. And and one, you can feel kind of um, soiled by it, right? Right. Or or what am I doing? You know, this is not what this is not my beautiful house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so let's go back to your Wikipedia page. So really, uh, <laughs> because, yes, let's because do I'm, that <laughs> because I'm hope because I'm hoping that you'll 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 fill in some of the the, the missing gaps. So they they do talk about your relationship with with Tony Childs, how you won an Emmy with her. Um, the song was because you're beautiful. Is that Cor- right? Correct. Um, what year was that? Uh, won the Emmy in in 2004. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so then it talks about that you worked with Robbie Robertson I on did. Storyville. Yep. That had to have been cool. Did that have something to do with uh, the, the the Bearsville that uh, you talked about earlier as well? Uh, no, that, that happened much earlier than that. It probably happened because of the David and David album. Okay. And... Um, and then I got together with him and, uh, you know, collaborated for a few months. It was, it was really a lot of fun getting together with him. I'm sure he's got stories. Yeah, that's pretty, he, he definitely has stories and he's <laughs> kind of happy to tell them and he's got a great way of telling them. I, yes, I can only, I can only imagine. Um, I still haven't listened to his most recent record. It came out earlier this year or last year. I I don't know. I haven't heard it either. Yeah. All right. We got some homework to do. He seemed to be pretty happy with it. And, uh, that that much I read, but I haven't heard it yet. Right. Um, all right. So between Tony and then Robbie, then you go to work for or with Meredith Brooks on her record, Blurring the Edges? Uh, yeah, I produced it. Any other work? That's that's where it ends. Like 1997 is where you end uh, on Wikipedia, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that David has done other work since 1997. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, Bearwald and I have uh, done records. You know, we've collaborated on stuff a few times. In in all that, you know, when we've uh, decided we're doing a record again and. And we get together and we uh, collaborate for, uh, you know, a, a few months. And then it kind of comes apart. I actually did a record with Tony in uh, 2005. Okay. That, uh, that came out, I think, in 2008, something like that. Because she took a long hiatus from the industry as well, right? Um. Well, she had she was pretty sick for a while. Okay. So, so what else? What else have ha, is not listed on the Wikipedia that should be? Oh, and I do have to ask you this: 
So on the Wikipedia, it says, this was from 2016. It says, it's reported that the duo are working on a second album. <laughs> yeah, like, well, and, I... And, and of course, it says citation needed. <laughs> I just told you, yeah, we we get together periodically. And um, that was probably the most recent time that that happened. Okay. But it, it uh, I don't know, sometimes relationships that don't work, don't work. So um, we always come up with stuff initially that seems like it's uh, could be edited somewhere good. But it it doesn't work out for some reason. It sounds like maybe you guys are your worst critics. Well, I'm sure that's true. But there's probably a zillion other things involved in it as well. Okay. But we are definitely our worst critics. Because my guess is if you were to release something from any of those projects that you've worked on that it's probably better than nearly everything that I've listened to this year. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, it's something, uh, it's just, I, I think, I mean, I think that it's, uh, there's probably an expect, you know, you still think that there's an expectation that we have about, you know, wanting to do something. I mean, it's the original thing was, um, just coming really from the heart and, and uh, doing what we, where you're in that uh, kind of place where you can't help yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you want to have happen every time. And when you, when you are in that kind of situation where we're probably not, like you said, we're not, we're probably our, our worst critics. And then it gets to a point where it's like, well, we, well, we can't put this out or we kind of lose the, the mojo or the energy for a little bit. And that's where the self-criticism might come in. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I've been through it a lot. And at first it's kind of starts out well and always seems to end up where it ends up. Maybe that's just our, uh, who we are. So let me ask you this. When do you know when a song is done? When do you when do you know that it's like this is the last time that I'm going to tinker with this particular song? It's difficult to describe that. I mean, um, because you you feel kind of an urgency to complete a tune like that, where you you uh, you it's it's you've got all the detail, all the kind of space into, into it, all the kind of emotion and you don't want to do any, it's, you feel like it's wrong to do anything with it anymore. Okay. Sometimes that happens the first night and then sometimes it can happen over six months when, when you have to work on it until you, cause you just feel like something else could happen with this. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, all right. So considering that you've been involved in a lot of projects and I realize that this question might be one of those pick your favorite kid kind of question, um, which is usually tough for us dads, except on certain days like today, right, Wayne? Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're just talking <laughs> about his. From Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so David, of all the songs that you've had a hand in, which ones, which ones are you most proud of? What do you mean by proud though? There's ones, there's ones I like more than others, but I don't know. You know, you just have some kind of emotional connection to them, which you can't necessarily, um, uh, it, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily like what your definition of the best would be. Like, I'm sure everybody equates you with Boomtown. Yeah. So, so we're not talking about the resume builders because that, that and, you know, leaving Las Vegas, those are on the resume because everybody knows those songs. But w- what songs are, are the ones that you are like, if somebody were to ask you, tell tell me one song that just speaks to you, like it still speaks to you, or there's just this fantastic story behind it. What are what are those particular songs? I mean, on David and David, um, ain't so easy. Still speaks to me in spite of the fact that when I listen to it, I can hear. You know, I didn't really know um, all I, I was going to know about production, so it sounds kind of clunky. But there's just such an, an an emotional beauty to it that I can still hear that kind of original uh, intent and how much we were committed to what we were doing, and it just sound it's just uh, um, it's still something I want to listen to for that reason. Okay. Also, Swimming in the Ocean, which is kind of relevant to this uh, song. Talking Heads um, yes. conversation because, you know, it, it's it's kind of like what they were doing on the, the record we're going to talk about, where there's actually no chord changes or anything. There's just kind of like this groove, which all these kind of uh, things change around that groove while that stays constant throughout. And it's just, uh, it ends up having this kind of um, hypnotic quality, which, you know, we were in when we were doing. And um, I was always, um, if, if I would be proud that we managed to get to that in a, in a recording situation because, you know, it's a very vulnerable place, really. You have to get to, to this, um, we really have to let go. Otherwise, it's not going to be something you want to listen to. But it, but if it in all these kind of spare uh, instrumental parts all kind of pl- play a part uh, with each other, and that that kind of had a, an artistic quality to it that I was you know yeah I guess I was kind of proud that we got to that. I mean that was something. I'm not 
about uh how about any of your work with with uh tony or um uh yeah i think the that um walk and talk like the angels was um you know that's that is my favorite tony song right definitely taking taking a good crack at art rock and and pulling it off pretty much yes i mean these were things that were uh done out of something other than just let's write a song it it was it was connected to let's uh come from some kind of place which is more than just song form it's uh it's got a depth to it and you know it takes a bit to to pull those together you were yeah. asking about uh, when do you know it's done well when you want to listen to it <laughs> all the way through right right <laughs> How about uh, how about favorite song that you've worked with uh, Matthew Ryan on? Ooh, that's a tough one. Because I like some of the stuff that we've done that isn't released. Oh, okay. And um, I and I I really like that Mayday record. There's um, you know there's several, and interestingly enough, like one of my favorites on that I didn't even play on. I don't think. Um, uh, but the one that there was one that I I was really proud of that we managed to pull that off that lights of the Commodore Barry, mm-hmm. which was kind of a, um, you know just kind of a concept initially that pretty much lived up to it. We we pretty much did what uh, we were talking about that we'd like to have happen with that tune. In, ter- in the in the production, but I really feel very good about a lot of stuff on that record. It's just uh, you know, it just kind of lived up to um, what I think we wanted collectively out of that, which is is pretty good. Maybe more than any of the any of the records that I've done, really. Just uh, it's it was kind of a success as a you know. No noteworthy first record, but it's not just that. I really liked it. I really liked it as a record. It's really good, very, very, yeah. very underappreciated. And we have a connection that's lasted since then. That's awesome. And how many? And Doug Lancio played on that record as well, right? Yeah, yeah. There was uh, Jay Joyce who went on to be kind oh, of nice. a. 
there's a few more too. Um, but a lot of it, uh, you know, when I think of that record, I think mostly of me and Ryan, but you know, there was definitely a lot of participation by other players like that uh, whole scene I was describing to you up in uh, Woodstock. That was, uh, it was fantastic recording in that barn. And, you know, he was, was doing his first uh, record and all that kind of stuff. So you don't know, and it's winter. So you don't know how it's going to go. And it uh, was, it turned out really well. It did. And, um, yeah, for for people who have not checked out Mayday, I know it's, gosh, it's over twenty years old now, but so good. amazingly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Does that make you feel old? Uh no, no, I don't need any help. <laughs> <laughs> any any other records that uh, maybe um, we 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 don't know that you're on, but uh, we should know that you're on. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's I'm, I'm on the four non blondes record, but that's that's because <laughs> I, tur- I turned up at David Tickle's house one day, and he needed a synth part. So that, I don't think that's necessarily noteworthy, but it's interesting. As a I did re, I, rec- I wrote a song with Dave Wakeling. I don't know if you know who that is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We absolutely know. In fact, I've, <laughs> I've got a uh, I've got a general public signed record on my wall uh from dave so well, there, yes there absolutely go. no dave wakeling well he's a great guy and we got together and wrote a tune somewhere back in the the gray mist and <laughs> um but I, I i don't know any maybe something else will come up and pop into my mind okay i wasn't prepared for uh, thinking about that kind of stuff, but yeah. you were thinking that we were only going to talk about uh, uh, talking heads, right? Uh, well, I thought we'd do some lead in, but <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears. We'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about uh, the record that you that you chose. Um, but before we do that, we've been asking all of our guests. So here we go. Wayne Wayne loves it when I throw this question out. So so David, your opinion of Toto's Africa, is it a good or bad song? I, I don't know the tune. Africa? Oh, that's on your Oh, to wait. Yes, I do. Um Everyone knows Africa. I think it's well produced cheese, but but I wouldn't want that uh <laughs> I wouldn't want that to necessarily be circulated, but that's what I think. <laughs> so, 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 good song. Well, I don't know that well-produced cheese is okay. A description right. of a good song, but that's right. I think I, I think it's a professional song. There you go. And uh, <laughs> professional sometimes is professional. So I almost feel like you, you probably talked to, to Matthew Ryan about this question because we have a special category for him. We, it's called the indifferent category, also known as the Matthew Ryan category, because he, he went all Ayn Rand on us. He's like, Be, because I don't think about Africa, therefore it doesn't exist. That's, that's what he said about the tune? 
pretty much, yeah. So we gave him his own category because he he wouldn't tell us whether or not it was a good or a bad song. So we just gave him his own separate category. When I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't. I think that's a. I wish I'd done as well as he did. When, <laughs> when, I, when I hear when I hear tunes like that, it's uh, it's in a category other than things that I listen to. Yeah, and the reason I don't listen to it is because it's you know clearly professionally done and all that but what i mean what are the lyrics actually about and what is uh, and i i never took the time to actually care and and there must be a reason for that why do you almost I care? you almost quoted some of the lyrics that you needed to take some time <laughs> anyways no <laughs> did i how you, about you almost you almost did <laughs> yeah you almost I mean, but the thing is, is it's, it's, you know, grade A, uh, slick, um, that kind of, I feel like I'm digging a hole for myself here. But, you no, know. you're, you know what? You're allowed to have your opinion. Ben just wants to browbeat everybody who doesn't go, Oh yeah, that's a great that, song. That so is, you like that, it. I get oh, I it. I love, I love Africa. It's a great song. Yeah. Great song. I think it lacks depth or soul, it, but it's not a great song. I mean, it's that's right. Well I done. Agree. You know, but at least that's what I think. Yeah. See, I, I, I can, I have those songs that speak to my soul, and then I have those songs that just make me smile. And Africa is definitely in the smile category. It's not one of those. Have you ever seen a junkie's face right after they oh, shoot heroin into their eyes? You keep it's a, you, smi- a you, smile comes across. You keep it. pulling the whole heroin <laughs> thing, and I really, you know, it's huh? it's getting to the point where I'm I'm being uh, just. <laughs> dumbfounded by equating Africa with heroin, but all right, that's cool. But I, I used to, I mean, to be honest with you, I did like, like, for example, the, probably the, the sounds of the marimbas, if that's what they are and, and things like that. That's what I mean about well-produced. Yeah. And I liked the, the harmonies when it hits the, the Africa part, it, it is a good hook, you know, in terms that I, I always listen to it and I can remember it. Like when you asked me about it. Yeah. But it's not like, uh, wow, I can't, uh, th- this is really taking me for a ride or anything. Um, <laughs> All good. All right. So we're going to put you in the no category. So you're, you're, you're lumped in there with Wayne. So, okay. So it's all good. All good. And, and Wayne, I'm not offended when a guest says it's not a good song. You, you think that I am, I'm not offended. Well, I know when they try to be, they try to be professional and polite. You, you, you tend to, you, you kind of ratchet down, that's, try to, try to pigeonhole them into a, into a yes. That's, that's not true. That's I, not I was true. trying to be professional <laughs> and polite, and, but I, yeah, I didn't. I agree speed, though. <laughs> and, and I was, bad. and I was not trying to take David for a ride on that. So contrary <laughs> to what Wayne thinks, but. But well-produced cheese fits a description of a lot of things that are kind of sumptuous at first listen. Yeah. Uh, for me, but. Yeah. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would throw Carly Ray Jepsen in the uh overproduced cheese, but there you go. <laughs> it's All a good right. category. Yeah, it is. It is. Maybe that maybe that's what we're gonna change. We're gonna change maybe we'll change Matthew Ryan's category to overproduced cheese category. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> that's Well, I like the uh if Ayn Rand thing. I just don't understand that in relation to him, but you don't have to tell me. I mean <laughs> Oh, good. All right, let's switch gears. So, uh, t- tell us the the record that you chose to revisit for this episode. I chose "Remain in Light" because 
you know, just had such a, uh, made such an impression on me in the eighties at a time where I, sometimes I was wondering, I think, I mean, even though it was kind of a vibrant time, there, there was a lot of stuff that, um, I don't know. It was just kind of bouncing off me. Uh, this was something like when I heard that, I was surprised because um, they w- had not been a band that I necessarily had followed. I, I kind of respected them in some kind of way, but I, I hadn't followed them that much. And then I was uh, hearing that record, which seemed like such a, a an enormous um, uh, advancement. Mm-hmm. It's such an enormous uh, artistic statement that I couldn't uh, deny listening to it. Or, I mean, I was just kind of dazzled when I first heard it because they, I had thought of them as kind of, you know, the way players and especially when they're young could kind of be uh, condescending and they can't play or whatever kind of stupid thing I've, I, uh, I thought, uh, I stopped thinking and I, you know, just was so, uh, compelling and it had such a point of view and it was kind of, uh, not coming from a traditional songwriting form at all. And it had like, it was very artistic and I, I was envious of it. It was like, wow, that is something I would like to do. Yeah. So when you told me let's do remain in 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 the light i immediately thought about the percussion that you included in your song being alone together that on that david and david record and and i don't oh. and i don't know if there's a talking heads influence on that song but that maybe i'm reading into it but i felt like that was kind of the vibe that you were trying to go for that, I don't think that that's not, uh, that much of a reach necessarily, yeah. although I wasn't thinking about it. I was definitely influenced by it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's like percussion uh, put into a groove like that kind of has this perpetual motion about it. Yeah. And, you know, it's and it's kind of kind of coming from some kind of place that I was very much uh, influenced by the record. So, even though I might not necessarily have been thinking about it right at that moment. And, and the one thing that you, you said about, uh, what was the, the, the one David and David song where you said that they're swimming would, in the ocean, swimming yeah. in the ocean, didn't have any, any chord changes. So, you know, the one piece of production that I saw. So if people aren't familiar, remain in the light, um, produced by Brian Eno, or at least he worked on it. I, I guess I'm, no, ass- he produced it. I'm assuming he's a producer on this. So, oh, yeah. so he would take pieces of the jam sessions that the band would do. And then he would splice essentially to pieces of those jam sessions together and come up with the groove that you hear on a lot of the, the, the songs on this record. And then he would have David Byrne come in and add lyrics to the music. Some of the lyrics as you, we'll talk about the lyrics, but some of them are poignant. Some of them are really nonsensical, but that's, that's kind of how they made this, this record was you found a groove, you found some lyrics and there's your song. 
and the idea of what the song is is kind of different because it's it's the thing is is they uh, you know by finding that was jam sessions that he that he kind of uh, listened to the what he thought the hot spots were mm-hmm. and then he s- spliced it up so the w- what you're starting with right off the bat is has got some kind of heat to it and it's it's not that different than now except you're not doing it all with machines you're you're basically taking a bunch of people playing together and then uh, splicing it the i guess uh, the interesting thing to me is when i went back and listened to it it still sounds uh great yeah uh, to my ears it still sounds like I wanted, was wondering if I would the product production would sound dated or none of that. I, they they uh, they found the hot spots and then they kind of the thing is is like even the vocals are different. They it's not a traditional lead vocal a lot of the time. So I mean, Burn is not so much a narrator. He's he's kind of decorating the uh, the grooves. In the same way, in some ways, the, as the guitars and the keyboards and everything are, and, and the uh, percussion. I mean, they're, they're all those vocal parts that are kind of sitting on top of each other and mm-hmm. um, just kind of enhancing this hypnotic uh, effect, which, you know, it's, uh, that was quite the achievement. And certainly what I thought. Absolutely kind of skip through some of the bio info we i i usually like to give a little you know uh dates etc so remain in the light fourth studio album from talking heads released in october of 1980 and we'll talk about some of the singles that were done um kind of going back to what we talked about eno all over the production on on this record I mean, it's safe to say that Eno is a genius, right? Yeah, I mean, and and that's kind of I, I had been a fan. I guess it's fan is the right word. Uh, I mean, I was really influenced by Eno in the seventies, and um, you know, I, I didn't even know that he uh, produced this at first. And then when I saw his name on there as the producer, I was uh, oh, of course. <laughs> Now that makes sense. Right, right. But it also, you know, it made me, wow, I wish I was doing that, you know? Yep. So um, the record peaked at number 19 on the Billboard 200, um, and Rolling Stone uh, named this as the fourth best album of the 1980s. Wayne, we've talked about the 500 greatest albums of all time list that Rolling Stone has put out. So this is, uh, there's three records by Talking Heads on that 500. This is uh, the, the highest of all those at number 129. Nice. And that mm. is, uh, that's uh, just one back uh, or one ahead of number 130 is uh, a fellow CBGB alum television in their uh, landmark Marky Moon. Yep. Marky Moon. Oh, wow. How about that? Um, Here's another thing that I thought was interesting. So I'm looking at the list. So number 128, Iggy and the Stu's Raw Power. 
So it's a good neighborhood is what we're establishing here? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> apparently. Yeah. Huh? Wouldn't mind living there. Yeah. Um, the other ones that are around that, there's a bird's record at 127, younger than yesterday. Bob Marley and the Whalers Catch a Fire. It's at 126. Janis Joplin's Pearl is at 125. And um, Wayne, you'll be interested in, of this just because you're wearing the Beastie Boy shirt. Um, here, a little Rick Rubin uh, tie-in. Run DMC's Raising Hell is at 123. <laughs> so there, there you go. Uh. All right. Enough about the Rolling Stone 500. Um, so let's uh, let's dive into the record. Um, as a reminder, our scoring is based on the number of songs on the record. So Wayne, how many songs on this record? Only eight. So that means our top song is going to get eight points. Next favorite, seven. On down to least favorite, getting a one. Here's the first song. This is Born Under Punches. In parentheses, the heat goes on. And not to be confused with Glenn Fry's The Heat Is On. <laughs> no, I don't think it'll get confused no, with that. Not at all. Good album opener, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is uh, this is pretty pretty solid, um, pretty solid opener. Well, I mean, for me, it established kind of the um, the multi layered uh, rhythmic sense. Um, it doesn't have quite the the uh, you know the power and the depth that uh, some of the other ones that are on the way had for me um but it definitely uh, right off the bat i was you know this is they're they're trying to do something here that um i, I could I, I could hear uh, examples of in their earlier work when i really thought about it but i you know it, it kind of gets the ball rolling is basically the way i thought thought about it kind of afro new wave uh to my ears at the time and not uh, not quite the showstopper level that the what was coming though for me right yeah, yeah. Um, heavily influenced the the couple of things that I, I I saw for research is they were definitely drawing on the influence of uh, Fela Kuti did I say Kuti right is that right yeah, yeah. yes he did um, so um, I think he's Nigerian um, either way. Um, you know, African influence um, is all over this record. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Eno has been listening to that kind of stuff for, for years. Uh, you know, if you go back to Roxy Music, um, I mean, how, how great is the percussion on some of those Roxy Music records? 
Um, yeah, I mean, Eno had wasn't even with uh, Roxy Music for all no. that long, right? Eno is just such a you know he's such a one of a kind kind of. I mean, just the kind of uh, deference that all the different parts have in all these tunes. And just, I mean, I'm sure the uh, the members of the band, I don't, I don't want to short uh, change them right. either. Um, but I could hear Eno's effect, what I thought was Eno's effect in the production. And the production still works for me. Yeah, listening yep. to this record absolutely i do have a question on the lyrics so he mentioned he's a tumbler what is a tumbler uh, you know what there was a line that like uh that said something about uh bodies tumbling gosh where was it but there there was there was a line about bodies tumbling like out of something that made me think that that's what he was referencing oh fall, falling bodies tumbling across the floor well, I'm a tumbler, so I don't know if he's part of that. Because other than that, I don't know yeah, what he would mean. But it it definitely has this this kind of David Byrne has a cool voice because it has this. There's almost this frantic and paranoid quality that he has that he can actually uh, turn up and down. And so this one's a little more mellow. But there's that you know that whole the way he says things has this really suspicious like I'm. Like almost like I'm being followed or being watched, kind of feel to the whole thing that gives it a real cool atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, I I got some kind of post Watergate paranoia out of it, but uh, like most of his lyrics, he seems to be painting with words for me, and um, the specifics of them are always I, are, are not so much for me. Oftentimes, I find is what they evoke. They seem to fit with the music so well, but I, I think that he was, it was some kind of, a lot of this stuff seems about alienation and paranoia and, and not, you know, disassociation from uh, what's going on in society, not fitting in a lot of that kind of stuff fits in, uh, in a lot of these tunes, or at least that's what I'm uh, interpreting yeah. going on. Yeah. And I, and I got a lot of that and I think um, it's hard we listen to lots of records and try to analyze them. And I don't think in David Byrne lyrics, I don't think everything means something. I think exactly there's certain lines are important and other lines either rhyme or they fill a space. But I, so it's hard. He's, he's a very intelligent man. It's hard to exactly grasp what he's saying, but because I think you, you get caught up trying to read every line and figure, and I don't think every line ties into what he's the overall are, you know, the overarching theme of what he's trying to say. Exactly. I mean, that exactly. That's what I said I, for me as well. I, they, they don't necessarily mean they evoke and they, they it's like, it's, it's not every, like a Dylan song or something where every syllable you can yeah. parse. And I, I really liked when you said decorate, cause I do think the important, I think it's very clear that the important part of this is the music and that his lyrics are about, somehow you know accenting that like they're just another layer of like say i thought that was a real cool way to say it decorating the 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 very intricate and complicated rhythms of this with these words because he's sometimes he's speaking sometimes he's half speaking half singing sometimes he's kind of you know doing it a lot quicker than even the tempo of the music so he's really just kind of 
uh, almost like another instrument that's just part of this rhythm. Absolutely, especially with all this vocal part. Well, we'll we'll get there. <laughs> yes, I don't want to. Yes, yes, we will. All <laughs> right, we've spent enough time on born born under punches. Let's uh, let's get some scores. So, Wayne, what you got? I gave it a three, and a lot of that has to do with that weird video slot machine that hits a jackpot towards the the later end of the song. And then David, I uh, I had it at five. Okay. And um, I've got it as a five as well. So great minds, right. yes. But it's still not like uh, Africa. <laughs> it's, it's it's all nice. good. It's all good. I, I I still like you as a guest, David. It's it's all good. All right, moving on. Cross-eyed and painless. You guys see the video for this one? Uh, n- I never did. No, I-, I did not. No. All right. Um, so the music video was directed by Tony Basil, and uh, does not include any of the members of the band. Um, there are a bunch of just street dancers. So what you remember seeing back in the early '80s of you know beboppers, what what have you? Um, they're all kinds of different little mimes that they're doing hustling and um, street fighting and all that stuff. So um, one thing that I, hopefully one of you can, can give me some clarification. Cause I, I read a couple different things about this song that it was a single. Somebody said that it had reached number 20 on the U S dance chart um, and that it was released as a single, but I don't, I couldn't find that it was actually released as a full on single, except for like maybe just for the dance chart. Cause, um, houses in motion is definitely the second single off this record. And of course the most popular song in this record, that's the lead single. So anybody do any research on this? Um, no, I didn't, I didn't see any, I, I guess it, it always, I always thought of it as a single because this is one of the, the songs you you recognize instantly from the name as a Talking Heads song. I mean, even when I, I saw the title and I couldn't place the song um, until I listened to it, but it's one of the ones that you, you know, that name, the name is thrown around a lot. Is that because it's this song is one of the songs on Stop Making Sense? And everybody knows that? Mm, I, that I, record? I don't know. So I, think that, I think there's only two songs off of this record that made it on to stop making sense. And I, I, this is me overanalyzing it, but I, I have to feel as though something, something to do with all the unique percussion that's on this, on this record and, and the, the grooves that maybe just wasn't able to translate very well to the stage. 
It didn't. I I, I don't even remember this <laughs> and stopped making sense. Yeah. I, I mean, okay. this is the first one that, uh, you know, was kind of in the knock my socks off uh, category yes. for this record when it, when, it, yeah. when it came out. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's enormously hypnotic, multi-layered, as are all, you know, I mean, that's kind of a across-the-board description, I, I realize, of a lot of this stuff, but... And um, surreal lyrics. I mean, they were surreal for me, certainly at the time, like a lot of burns, like uh, he, he just, uh, it's more about this larger concept of a groove with this stuff. And they just, um, you know, they just did it so well. I mean, it's, uh, it's a kind of a, inadequate dis- description of it but i mean it's to take something without any changes as they do on s- just about all of these and just simply add and subtract things and and you know have the vocal uh, parts change into different parts um without the, uh, the the music underneath necessarily changing that much and have the lyrics uh, really just paint the picture as much as anything just kind of it's the same as like with what they do with the guitar parts there's almost never any guitar solos on this record in fact even when there is it still doesn't sound like a regular solo there's these solo sections that have these kind of uh you know sounds to them and this one is another one they and but they had that great uh what i thought was kind of hooky was that still waiting and the reason i thought it was hooky is because it sounded great when they when they got to that, still waiting. Yeah, it hits that, and it's just like the, it, it. Somehow the groove becomes more intense by adding that vocal part. But outside of that, it's really not much has changed on it. It's just uh, you know, it's something to pull that off. It's terrific. Yeah, it's a groove for sure. I love this song a lot. I think it's probably my take on the you know just a. I thought the lyrics were, you know, about losing identity or something to that effect. Well, and you know, that one, the lyric parts came to me later because the the thing that did catch me right away is the groove, even from the first song, which does have kind of a more of a computer generated feel a little bit to it. This is so funky, and so organic, and it is just awesome. And the lyrics, all you can, all I really... I mean, he's clearly the word facts mm. comes up a lot. It's just facts, facts, this and facts, this. And so the when I when I really started kind of trying to take that overarching look, it really with all the references, the facts felt like uh, the media and all of this information. And then I started looking at the title, Cross-Eyed and Painless. And if you were just imagine getting thrown all these facts at you nonstop to where your eyes just cross and you go numb. And then I thought... This is completely ahead of its time. I mean, how much information is thrown at us nowadays? So I, I I took it that to that whole, you know, that whole, I could just like the title finally made sense when I started looking at it like that. And it really, and this is probably the first one, but a couple of other times on this record, I thought David Byrne is completely ahead of his time. This was 1980, 40 years ago. On all of that, not to mention that he was using facts as a percussion instrument. You know, just the way he was, facts are, you know. Yeah. yeah. And the facts aren't working anymore. The facts yeah, are causing too much trouble. them at you uh, for that delivery. All right. 
Should we get some scores on uh, on this song? I gave it a seven. I absolutely, the more I listened to it and the more I kind of kind of felt like I got uh, uh, what David Byrne was saying. Um, it, and then, like I say, the beat is just, it's so funky and it's so, it's, it's so complex that it, it, this was my, my second favorite song. Oh, wait. So seven is second favorite. Oh, I got that. I got this confused. <laughs> no, you can, you, you were, you were almost there on the last, last score. I, I think I've got you down for previous song was four points. This is my second favorite song as well, but I have it as two. But, uh, so flip it around and yeah, you have, yeah. yeah. It's flipped around. Yes. Yep. It's my second favorite. So just to make sure. Seven points. Yes. And uh, this is also my second favorite song on the record as well. So Ooh. this is also getting sevens. So. I've got chills. Yes. <laughs> if only we were in Vegas right now with, with triple sevens, right? Hmm. Yeah. There we go. Amen. <laughs> Poetry. All right. <laughs> All right. Next song, The Great Curve. I, uh, I get to see everybody's scores in advance. So, uh, David, why do you like this song so much? Well, some of it is like a holdover from probably when I first heard this record. And it absolutely, um, you know, I, I remember it just kind of knocking my socks off. I was walking around the house and the, the kind of relentless, unchanging rhythm again but just this particular version of it and um the show-stopping kind of multi-layered rhythmic arrangement which every combined everything with from horns vocals uh guitar parts and and burns kind of uh you know idiosyncratic uh singing and lyrics and and just the sheer energy of that, and once again, my th- my thinking that um, this was something I wanted to do, and then on top of that, for me at that time, outside of the kind of soulish guitars which you could find in in just about any of this, there was the uh, Adrian Ballou mm-hmm. guitar solo, which. Um, you know, when I first heard that, I was kind of, wow, they're doing that. And it seemed kind of Hendrixy. I don't know that it seems like it to me now, but um, it was just kind of had it all. And the, the uh, sustaining that for the entire tune, the, the way that they did. And the, the, like I said, the fact that, that um, the uh, bass drum I mean, the bass uh, guitar never changed. Those those uh, vocal parts that one, one would pick up from the other uh, kind of uh, 
polyrhythmic the, the way everything was going. I, I was uh, I was pretty uh, floored by it. Could could anyone get a, away with the the lyrics of "The world moves on a woman's hips"? Could they get away with that in today's in today's world? I think the way he did it, it would it wouldn't be. I mean, the she in this is. Once again, it's almost mysterious, like the government man and the facts in the previous two songs. It's very, it's not clear. I mean, as to what, is is it a metaphor? Is it, you know, is it the female gender as a whole? It's very difficult. So I I think he absolutely could get away with it. This one uh, grew on me the more I listened to it. My score isn't reflective, I don't think, of how much... I grew to like this song at the more and more I listened to it. Cause I mean, Chris France and, and Tina Weymouth, I believe are married and they are married in every way. The drums and the bass, Holy matrimony. They're just, they are locked in tight on this one. Yeah. I mean, it's hypnotic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think my only criticism on this song is the outro is so long. It's six and a half minutes long. Just so you know, Side A of of this song or uh, of this record is three songs long, so we're gonna flip the record over here at the end of this this uh, this song. So it's six and a half minutes long, and I just kind of felt like it was maybe maybe two minutes too long. Yeah, I felt because of the tempo being being what it is and the rhythm being so tight that it did seem to go on. Because it's got a very hypnotic uh, effect on it, so it when it goes six minutes, it seems even longer than that. And I, I, I've heard Adrian Blue on other stuff, and I really uh, I can appreciate him as a guitar player. But I think the thing that for me that was is this is so rhythmic, and his guitar solo is completely almost abstract. It doesn't even sound like it. Definitely doesn't sound like other people's guitar solos. That it didn't. It almost took away from off for me because the, the, the rhythm is just so it's just nonstop. It's just this constant, you know, big complex layered rhythm. And then to throw that, that kind of abstract guitar over the top of it, especially to the, the, the solo at the end, the outro solo. And it's not, and it's almost, uh, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's definitely, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't have a, I, I love Adrian Ballou. It's just that in the context of this, the song is, and all these songs are. Hey everyone, Ben here. So the night that we recorded this episode, my service provider for internet dropped me about four different times during the recording process. And it would usually drop me while Wayne was giving one of his dissections of the songs I was able to salvage a few of those diatribes of Wayne's, but this particular one, unfortunately, I got cut off right in the middle uh, through the, the beauty of editing piece all of this together. Unfortunately, this particular portion of the recording, I couldn't, so uh, we'll get right back to it. I'm sure you were. How long? What, where, what did you hear before you left? Uh... I was just talking about how long it was, and that's about the last I heard. Right. Oh, you're killing me. 
all this gold is just just getting out of here. I <laughs> I feel like it's not the same trying to read. Yeah, yeah, it is. You, then you you're acting. Yeah. Um, well, I, I feel like I'm impressing David, so I got that going for me. But although I don't agree with you guys about the uh, the solo, the solo, but that's yeah. true. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get some scores. Let's move on. Um, all right. Fuck the solo. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, David, what do you got for a score? That is my number one tune, or my favorite one. All right. Eight points for David. Wayne, your score? I gave it a four. Like I say, it starts to feel long just because the, the tempo and the rhythm is so tight that it, it, it feels like it creates this effect where it sounds like it's even longer. Right. And while I love Adrian Ballou, I thought I, the solo, especially the outro solo, didn't didn't work as well. Right. And uh, I also give it a four. Look at us being together on scores for a change. Well, that just, that's not that's not a common thing. Yeah, we're going to have to change that up on the next song, I think. All right. Here's, uh, we're going to flip the record over. This is Once in a Lifetime. Everybody knows this song, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, the, what's interesting on how how much it's in our DNA, uh, at least for us people who, you know, grew up in the in the 80s, is this was never a huge single. Like, this was not a huge single when it was released off of the record. Um, it did chart, I think in, let's see, I've got, it charted at number 91 when it was re-released as a live version from the Stop Making Sense record. So, but we all know it. Like this is, this is definitely a song that for us who grew up in the eighties, we all know this. And I thought it was a career changing single for them. Yes. I mean, because it's whatever, even if it didn't chart that high, it just had such a presence and, you know, the vocal approach and the, and the verses and everything, which Byrne apparently got from a preacher, you know, kind of thing. It's, uh, you know, just so odd and successfully uh, rendered between that and the kind of glorious chorus which sounds like it's some kind of release into the, uh, you know, into the water. And uh, it's, it just sounds uh, like redemption, even though I don't know whether, that, whether that's what he means or not. But it uh, was always just kind of knocked, knocked out that they managed to have a single, which apparently wasn't as big as I thought it was, um, yeah. that they, yeah. they managed to, you know, create such a presence for them. 
without sacrificing their uh, artistic integrity. Right. And, and to your point about the, the, the preacher um, thing, the preacher aspect is that's definitely captured in the video. That was also directed by Tony Basil, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his, his uh, very animated being in a suit, um, throwing the hands up. He said that was that was definitely inspired by listening to preachers delivering these, you know, really outrageous sermons. So there you go. Which he, you know. It is kind of a, even though it's preacher inspired, it's, it just still sounds like kind of quirky, uh, David Byrne art rock. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it manages to be a, a great single because it, it is like the, the, one of the tunes, I don't know how many of them, not very many of them have chord changes on this, uh, on this record. And even on this one, it goes to the chord changes uh, when it hits the chorus and it just, there's that kind of release into the days go by and the water's pushing you forward. And, um, and yet the, the baseline stays kind of the same uh, throughout that. I mean, it was definitely something they were sticking with on this record, having those grooves just throughout take you through it. But it's uh, you know it's absolutely fantastic as a single and and as a song as far as I'm concerned. Hurry up, Wayne! Get your diatribe in here before our internet goes uh, okay. crazy again. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I completely agree with him because the one thing I wrote in my notes was more conventional without being pop, you know, without being formulated. I mean, they it's almost like they did it on their own terms. This is a popular song. But they they did it their way. I mean, the tempo's still extremely rhythmic, but it's it's slowed down a little bit. His voice goes into that much more almost cartoonish, like over the top level, like a preacher. Um, I loved because I had read something where critics had said, you know, it's it's a reflection on crass consumerism, and and David Byrne had made a comment that it was not so much about that, but about being unconscious. Like, where did how did I get here? How did I? Where did this big car come from? Where is this big house? this beautiful wife. And then I thought, really, when you look at it, it's the same thing. Like the, 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 this trying to get things and not even really realizing why or how or what you're doing. Um, and then I thought the water was an incredible, and I, like I say, maybe, maybe he didn't mean it that way, but when you think about water, water follows the path of least resistance. This, this whole thing where he's just going through this life, not really paying attention to what he's doing. Yeah. Um, also, well, I mean, water covers two thirds of the of the surface of the earth. It's it's everything. And it just all seemed like a great metaphor to put into this song that's about gathering up all these things, but not even really realizing why or how or what they are or why I have them or how important they are to me. And it kind of the water kind of pushes you through to the next uh, stage of life, whether you plan it that way or not. And, you know how you- yeah and it's imp- i mean it's how imp- i mean li- and water is life i mean if you don't have water you you can go without food for a lot longer than you can go without water so it's got all kinds of meanings even if he didn't necessarily mean that specifically uh, it's in- also interesting to me that, that i found out that eno didn't like this tune oh <laughs> that so makes sense he actually, too <laughs> this was actually one that he, he was thinking maybe didn't deserve to be on the record which wow <laughs> 
That's interesting. No, no, no. Interesting. Yeah. To, to your point on the water, if we're looking at the, the religious overtones of this, of the, you know, going back to the preacher concept, you know, water in religious terms is a rebirth, you know, baptism, et cetera. Um, yeah, I think yeah. redemption was was mentioned by David yeah, earlier. Absolutely. All right. Let's get some scores on this. Um, so I'm giving this a six. Wayne? This was my favorite song. It's the one I had the most familiarity with. But like I say, there's that a little bit more conventional without without giving up who they were. I just absolutely yeah. loved it. And then David? Well, so I had this as my third favorite. So does that mean it's that's six points? F- six. Yeah. As third favorite? You know, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. There we go. All right. Next song, Houses in Motion. I'm just going to throw this out there. This is this is my favorite song on the record. I just kept coming back to it. I just really dig I dig the beat of it. You know, going back to Cur- Curve of the Earth where it was six and a half minutes long, I felt like this was the perfect length for this particular song. It still had a lot of that repetitious percussion on it, but I felt like it didn't drone on quite as much as, as uh, Curve did. Um, I have yeah, I have to laugh at your Freudian slip because the song was the Great Curve, but you mentioned it as uh, the Curve of the Earth, which just makes me just gives a paints a picture of how long that song yeah. felt to you. Like you could see the curve Absolutely. of the Earth there, before there, you got there to there the may, end. There of may the have song. been some Freudian thing going on there. <laughs> um, any of you guys do? Do you get a very treadmill type of interpretation for this song um, that you? How do you mean? Well, you you, you kind of like seem to be making progress on this treadmill thing. You're logging in the miles, but you're really you're just walking in place like an empty motion, you know. And he, and, yeah, I, I do get that. And, yes. and he keeps bringing that up, and that's part of why I think I just really I really dug this song just because of the the tone of it, the lyrics of it. It it all seemed to blend together for me really well. Um, he could have painted the picture with just the the you know the 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 tone of the the music or he could have painted the picture with the lyrics but i felt like he just brought both of those things together um and i just i don't know i love it maybe it's where i'm at cuz uh you know sometimes i feel like i'm doing the the whole treadmill thing uh, you know, the scathing indictment for the working for the man of doing the same thing over and over again, maybe. Um, hamster wheel. Yeah, it's the hamster wheel. It's the treadmill where, again, you're logging in all sorts of miles, but there's no there's no progress. It's kind of roughly what he uh, seems to be talking about, maybe on a lot of these for me. Yeah. 
roughly around the same kind of thing that, you know, kind of alienated from, from his life to some degree wondering, but yeah, treadmill makes sense uh, to me. I mean, it's a great chorus, uh, great background vocals again. And another example of, uh, when they have a solo kind of non-solo section, which I love that about this yeah. record. I mean, that's, you know, never never a standard issue kind of solo on anything. There's always some kind of sound that takes, uh, or sounds that do the role. Um, this is another one of these. It's like basically about five, four or five of these, or four of them probably are interchangeable for me. They, mm-hmm. I, they could change rank for me depending on what day. Um, and this is one of them, you know, it's just terrific. Yeah. Yeah, I really dig this song. Wayne, what you got on this one? And this was another one that's just more of the same, these great tight rhythms. And there was actually a couple spots in this where I thought I expected Isaac Hayes to tell me he was just talking about shaft. It got that funky in some of the spots. Um, and I had it higher, uh, but the, I, and I'll get to another song on here that once I read the lyrics, I, I, I just had to drop it down behind that. But also I feel like there's that if it's, I believe it's a poorly played trumpet and I don't know exactly why or how it was necessary, but that there's a, there's a horn at the end of this towards the end. I believe it goes on for a while that doesn't seem to be, I mean, I'm sure they're doing it on purpose. I'm sure that guy's a fine trumpet player, but I think Brian Eno was going for something. I'm not bothered by it. Yeah. Yeah. I was good with it. <laughs> All right. All right. Make me look like the asshole. I get it. Well, I mean, I'm kind of envy of their, I'm envy of the art artistry on this, on, you know, this record. They, they, they go for things into my ears. Uh, most of the time they're pulling them off really yeah. well. And I think, Ooh, God, that's good. Yeah, I agree. And this was an album that the more you listen to it, the more, more you hear and the more you like. Uh, for, at least for me, that's, I mean, the more I listened to it, the more I, I really enjoyed listening to it. And the more things I heard, um, e- the more, you know, some of the subtler stuff that comes into these rhythms as yeah. you, as you listen to it uh, repeatedly. And of course that always means that it's actually a really yep. good record. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. So I told you, this is my top score. Wayne, what you got? I gave it a five. It had been as high as I think it was actually at one point I had it as my second favorite, okay. but. And then David, this is my fourth favorite. So what does that? What number does that give uh, it? Gives it five points. Okay. All right. This uh, leads us up to seen and not seen. They had also molded their faces according to some idea. Maybe they imagined a new face better suit their personality, or maybe they imagined that their personality. Uh, collectively, I think we all kind of just were like, man, it's, it's okay. Um, I kind of, I won't say that this is one of their filler songs, but I feel like it's, it's kind of a transition song from, 
from previous song over to the next couple songs. So it's kind of changes a little bit of the tone of the, the rest of the record, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I don't see it as filler necessarily, but it's not necessarily as exuberant, uh, or as realized as some of the other ones for yeah. me. Yeah. Well, two things. One thing it reminded, it made me feel, it made, it reminded me of, uh, everybody's everyone's free to wear sunscreen kind of that that spoken thing with this kind of unique funky groove behind it but also did anybody hear tom tom club's genius of love in here i feel like i feel like chris franz and tina waymouth were were working on some stuff ahead of time there's probably there's probably some tom tom club going on there yeah can see that the lyrics to this were somewhat self-explanatory a lot of references to looking like what they're showing you on tv or in magazines and after all the the kind of the mystery and the intrigue of some of David Byrne's lyrics up to this point, it felt um, somewhat um, cliche or heavy handed compared to them. Well, that's definitely what it's about. It's about, you know, somebody who wants to be the people on TV, vanity and all that kind of stuff as, as a means of self-worth. But it, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's like, okay, all right. Or at least that's how I, on a record like this, that's, that's how I felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it reminded me, I, I was in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago for work and there was a, there was a dude who owned a jewelry shop who had so much Botox on, <laughs> um, and was, 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 was doing commercials like this person had no business doing a commercial looking the way that they did, but you could tell that, um, you know, they, they felt like they looked good. So it's like George Hamilton. I mean, how, how tan did he get? Do you believe (laughs) this, this dude looked like George Hamilton. Yeah. All right. It's it's amazing where lyrics can take you. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. The the whole recency of seeing that uh, and still being in my brain. So, all right, let's get some scores on this. So I give this a three, Wayne. A two. And then David. And I had this at uh, my seventh favorite, so. That's a two. So this is a two. Yeah. All right. Next song, Listening Wind. song more than david and i do so uh well give us uh and musically i liked it from the first you know the beginning and i i listened to it a few times I, and i guess i i never really paid attention to the lyrics i, you I go just go to song meanings.com for no i i i told you i don't do that i make up my Man. own song meanings holy crap i make up my I, own song meanings i read the lyrics as i was listening to the song which is something i do closer to writing my notes and this is all Clearly, you know, there's a whole story in this song about this African guy who's 
he buys parts for a bomb, he makes a bomb and he plants it in the, the local marketplace and then, you know, runs off for after the explosion. And, but so there's all this, there's, there's this really quickly developed, but, but fully developed story in these lyrics, uh, about you know American imperialism and yeah and it's and that in and of itself the the music already had this hook to me that I I already really liked I think and I think I'm I guess I'm on the fence as whether they should have gone maybe more North African Arabic but I think that might have been almost too cliche so they 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 did it a little bit different using what they'd used in in to this point but he quickly but he told this very and once again this was forty years ago. And this is, it's like, like I say, he's ahead of his time writing lyrics that are about, telling a story in a song that he wrote 40 years ago that are probably more relevant today than they were the day he wrote them. I mean, I would add that uh, the entire record is kind of ahead of its time. When I, when I listen to this, the, the, um, um, as well as like what you were just saying about the lyrics in this one, where he seems to be, you know, kind of talking about the effect of American imperialism and uh, a terrorist, a terrorist response to that. But also, the, I mean, like the production doesn't sound dated or when I listened to this, it wasn't it didn't hit me that way at all. Um, you know, it's just kind of, wow, this is 40 years ago and it sounds um, just when something is great, I guess it uh, it has a timeless quality to it, but that certainly would ap- apply to this. Um, and, but uh, this tune uh, generally hit me as kind of, um, you know, it's it's not one of the uh, knockout tracks for me that I would be drawn to immediately. It's still very good work. It's, it's pretty yeah. much how, how I felt yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. This this record never felt uh it didn't feel like it was written in 1980. No. It it does definitely has a, a timeless quality that holds up. Yep, I'd agree with that. And and going back to my point of the lyrics, um if you want all sorts of conspiracy theory uh interpretations of this song, just <laughs> just go to song meanings and you'll Yeah entertainment that lasts for hours. There you go. All right, Wayne, what you got for a score? I gave it a six. Okay. And then David. Well, this is my sixth favorite. So I don't know where three points. Yeah. And I give this two points. So that, uh, that leads us to final song on this record. The overload. ominous beginning i i felt i felt like this song sounded more like a pink floyd song than a talking head song and i actually got some uh one of the things i had written in my notes is this works great as a closer 
for that dark ominous. But I even at some points in it, I kind of heard the end from the doors. It kind of had that mm. that. And that's and that even I think that has a kind of a Pink Floyd quality. So it had elements of it that I liked, but I felt um, it didn't. It's almost like with all of the rhythmic and I guess this in a way it has its rhythm, because one of the things I wrote is it's got to be hard as a drummer to keep a beat that far apart because <laughs> yeah. he, he does it. But it is this is molasses in December as far as a tempo goes. Yeah. I mean, it. I don't know. It. uh was reminiscent to, to me when I listened to it of, you know, bands in LA at the time that kind of were, uh, had a dystopian quality to it with this, with the synth and everything. I mean, it's kind of an interesting choice that they did that. It does, it doesn't hold me after kind of the, the adventure that I'd been on with all the other tunes on this record before it, so it's it seems a little out of character, but uh, I kind of appreciate it anyway. I yeah. guess I I thought it was a good album closer. Uh, again, I guess I was looking at trying to tie everything together, and because it sounded so different from the other seven songs, I think that that probably accounts for my lower score on this, and maybe that's not super fair to it. Um. I would say on the lyrics, I have no idea what the lyrics mean. And after looking up on song meanings for the last song, I was kind of scared to look at song meanings for a meaning for this song as well. It has a very apocalyptic kind of feel, yeah. which once again yeah. makes makes sense for the end. That actually <laughs> it works as an ending as an ending song. Right. Right. Anything else on uh, on the overload? Nope. I think that'll do it. All right. Let's get some scores. Wayne? This was my least favorite, and I wouldn't by any sense say I don't like it. I just would say that it was my least favorite. Yeah. Yeah, me too. All right. And I'm matching. So we're we're matching ones on this. All right. So uh, did we cover it? Did we miss anything? <laughs> no. No. No, we did. I think we solved yeah. it. Yeah. I think we, uh, I think we yeah. dissected. Let's put a bow on this. All right, let's uh, let's let's recount our top five scores then. So, uh, any guesses on top score? I'd say cross-eyed and painless. Yeah, that's. Uh, I got an average score of seven since we were matching sevens there. Yes. Uh, second, second, once in a lifetime, that got an average score of six point six six. With houses in motion, that got an average score of six, probably because that was my top score. Um, when you only have eight songs to uh, do the scoring, uh, <laughs> kind of gets weighted a little higher. Um, all right, and then rounding up our top five, we've got the uh, the Great Curve. See, I said it right that time. The Great Curve, uh, five point three three, and then uh, finally uh, with an average score of four, Born Under Punches. So that's a pretty solid five, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Very. All right. Well, um, David, this has been fun. Thanks oh, absolutely. For, uh, for picking this record. Very much. Yeah. So uh, this is usually the point where I, re- I I tell the guests to remind our listeners where they can find all the happenings. Of, <laughs> there are no, but, no uh, places like that. To, <laughs> since there are no websites for David Ricketts, it's uh, kind of hard for you to do any promotion. So anything you want to promote right now besides uh, Matthew Ryan's uh, uh, 
great EP? No, I'll pass on the promotion <laughs> for right now. He's a humble man. Go. All right. There you are. And uh, so we always ask our guests, so uh, who do you know that I don't know who would want to join us on this podcast to revisit one of their favorite records? And you can't say Matthew Ryan because, you know. Even though we would love to have him back because he was, he was an amazing guest. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to have to think about that to tell you the truth. Okay. Like, I'm, I'm sure I can come up with somebody, but is the uh, is the other David? Is he? A, I knew you were going to ask him. Is, is he a big, <laughs> big nerd like like us as well? Yeah, he's he he'd be great. Okay, well we'll 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 chat offline. Okay. So as a reminder, you can find all of our happenings on our Facebook page for the Records Revisited podcast. We're also on Instagram. Um, that has been fixed, so it's no longer Records Revisited podcast. <laughs> um, you can find it as Records Revisited podcast. I'm, you know I'm going to give you crap about yeah, that well, until as, the day you, as die, you right? As you should. Okay. So we're now on Twitter, at Podcast Records, and you could find us on all of the major platforms, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, Spotify, etc. And you can go to recordsrevisitedpodcast.com for all of our previous episodes. Please go subscribe, rate, or review us as well on all those platforms. And here's the outro. Thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. Go to a live show. Buy a t-shirt of the band. Buy a record. Visit a record store. And not just on Record Store Day. We are Records Revisited. And we are... Out. Out. Out.